Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Fernando Florido and I'm a GP in the United Kingdom. In today's episode, we're going to look at some of the statements made by NICE in the guideline on CKD. And I will try to explain the reasons for these statements. We will look at the etiology, pharmacology and pathophysiology in the expectation that if we understand why the recommendations have been made, it will be easier for us to remember them. Remember that there's also a YouTube version of these episodes, so have a look in the description below. The first thing that I want to say is that in this episode I'm not doing a summary of the guideline. For that, please have a look at the corresponding episode on this channel. I have picked 15 statements, so let's get started. Number one, NICE says that reduced muscle mass leads to an overestimation of EGFR and increased muscle mass leads to an underestimation of EGFR. Right, we all see in our patients' test results that high creatinine levels normally come with low EGFR readings. This is obvious because renal impairment causes creatinine to rise and GFR to decrease. But we must also be aware that we are not talking about the real GFR values, but about the eGFR, that is the estimated value, which is based on a relatively complex formula that takes into account a number of parameters, including creatinine. The effect of the creatinine in the formula means that the higher the creatinine, the lower the estimated GFR. Now, creatinine is a breakdown product of muscle metabolism. Because formation happens almost exclusively in the muscle, creatinine will be higher in, for example, bodybuilders. They, because of the formula, would have a lower estimated GFR. On the other hand, a reduction in muscle mass is associated with lower creatinine levels, resulting in a higher estimated GFR. So don't be fooled by bodybuilders with a borderline low eGFR, or by, for example, malnourished elderly patients with a relatively high eGFR, as this may be just the effect of muscle mass on their readings. Number two, NICE also recommends that we should advise patients not to eat any meat in the 12 hours before a test for eGFR creatinine. And this is because dietary protein intake can affect creatinine concentrations too. We have just seen that creatinine is a breakdown product of creatine in the muscle. Therefore, ingestion of creatine, either via red meat or supplementation, can increase muscle creatine pools, raising the creatinine levels. So eating less or no meat will cause the creatinine to fall and consequently the eGFR to improve. This is important because if we're going to tell a patient that the eGFR is slightly low, we just want to make sure that it is real and that it's not just that they have binged on red meat for the last few days. Number three, NICE also says that we should recheck a high ACR between 3 and 70 in a subsequent early morning sample to confirm the result. This is because it has been noted in research that the use of early morning urine gives more accurate ACR readings and additionally early morning urines allow the exclusion of orthostatic or postural proteinuria. In orthostatic proteinuria significant urinary protein is excreted when standing but when lying down the urinary protein is completely normal. This usually occurs in young adults and is a benign condition with no long-term consequences. Number four, 
NICE also recommends that after starting or increasing the dose, we will not modify the dose of an ACE inhibitor or ARB if either the EGFR decrease is less than 25% or the serum creatinine increase is less than 30%. Right, so let's remember a little bit of anatomy. The glomerulus receives its blood supply from afferent arterioles. The glomerular capillaries exit into efferent arterioles rather than venules. Let's also remind ourselves that ACE inhibitors prevent the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 and ARBs block the effect of angiotensin 2. This results in relative vasodilation which preferentially reduces efferent or postglomerular resistance. Consequently, this will lower intraglomerular pressure, which will reduce the glomerular frustration rate, or GFR, and cause a subsequent rise in creatinine. An increase in creatinine of up to 30% and a decrease of eGFR of up to 25% are acceptable, and in the absence of renovascular disease, creatinine levels will frequently return to baseline or below if blood pressure is lowered despite the continued use of ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Number five, NICE also says that we will offer antiplatelet therapy only for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, but we need to be aware of the increased risk of bleeding in CKD patients. Now, why is this? The real cause for the association between CKD and bleeding is not well known, but research studies have shown that CKD has been associated with a 1.5-fold increased risk of bleeding. This has been associated with platelet dysfunction and activation of the fibrinolytic system. However, we also know that the function of the coagulation system in patients with CKD is abnormal because although some patients are prone to bleeding, other patients may also develop excessive clot formation. Little is known about the reasons why one patient develops bleeding problems while another tends to head towards excessive clotting. So in summary, for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, we definitely need to give aspirin, but being aware of the risks. Number six, NICE talks quite a bit about anemia of CKD and says that if EGFR is below 30, we will note that anemia is often caused by CKD. So let's have a look at the causes of anemia of CKD. Anemia of CKD is generally a normocytic, normochromic, hypoproliferative anemia. Although the widely accepted cause is the decreased renal production of erythropoietin, the hormone responsible for the stimulation of red cell production, anemia of CKD is of multifactorial origin. Other mechanisms include uremia, folate and vitamin B12 deficiency, iron deficiency, a shortened lifespan of red blood cells and bleeding due to dysfunctional platelets. But we have to emphasize that CKD patients are at significant risk of iron deficiency. Therefore, we must always consider iron supplementation as part of the treatment with erythropoietin stimulating agents or ESAs. Number seven, NICE says that in CKD patients, treated with iron, ferritin levels should not rise above 800 and that we will review the dose of iron when ferritin reaches 500. So what this means is that we are going to keep giving iron to our patients even when the ferritin level is well above the normal range. 
Why? This is because, in addition to true iron deficiency, CKD patients also have a functional iron deficiency, which is a type of cell iron blockade which results in reduced iron release from body stores, which is then unable to meet the requirement for erythropoiesis. By having a higher than normal ferritin, we would expect iron to be released for erythropoiesis more easily. Number eight, NICE also states that we will offer intravenous iron therapy to people on hemodialysis. And why? This is simply because it has been shown that hemodialysis patients also have an impaired intestinal iron absorption, which is why intravenous iron is preferred. Number nine, the guideline also says that we will treat clinically relevant hyperparathyroidism to improve the management of anemia. Now, this is a little bit more complex. First of all, anemia has been recognized as a possible complication of primary hyperparathyroidism. So, if the hyperparathyroid state can induce anemia in patients with normal kidney function, the high parathyroid hormone levels or PTH levels, also found in hyperparathyroidism secondary to CKD, will also have an unfavorable effect. So let's look at the pathogenesis or renal anemia associated with secondary hyperparathyroidism. Studies have shown that this is mediated via multiple pathways. One, bone marrow fibrosis, as a direct effect of the excess secretion of PTH. 2. Inhibition of erythropoietin synthesis, although the molecular mechanism is mostly unknown. 3. Inhibition of bone marrow erythroid progenitors. It is suggested that the excessive PTH downregulates the erythropoietin receptors on progenitor cells in the bone marrow. Therefore, physiological concentrations of erythropoietin can no longer sustain normal red cell counts, so normocytic and normochromic anemia follows and four, a shortened red blood cell lifespan because an excessive PTH level increases the osmotic fragility of red blood cells through enhanced calcium entry into the cells. Moreover, clinical studies have shown that the treatment of secondary hyperparathyroidism, either with medication or parathyroidectomy, leads to an improvement of the anemia supporting the role of PTH in renal anemia. Number 10, NICE also indicates that we should avoid blood transfusions in people in whom kidney transplant is an option. This is because exposure to multiple blood transfusions may cause aluminization to human leukocyte antigen or HLA class 1 on white blood cells. HLA antibodies can then react with the transplanted kidney leading to higher rates of acute rejection and poorer long-term graft survival. However, the risk of aluminization has reduced since the introduction of universal leukodepletion of blood components. Number 11, the next statement warns us that the use of ACE inhibitors or ARB may lead to an increase in ESA therapy or erythropoietin stimulating agent therapy. Now, why is this? Various mechanisms have been offered to explain this. First, it has been shown that angiotensin II directly increases the proliferation of erythroid progenitor cells in vitro. Therefore, any agent decreasing angiotensin II levels or its effect could potentially have a negative impact on erythropoiesis. 
Also, ACE inhibitors and ARBs have been found either to increase substances that inhibit erythropoiesis or to reduce others that stimulate it. I will not go into more detail about this because it is quite a complex area. Number 12, NICE also tells us that hyperphosphatemia in CKD stage 4 or 5 can be common. Now, by way of introduction, we must know that hyperphosphatemia is seen as a silent killer because of its dramatic effect on vascular calcifications. Also, hyperphosphatemia explains, at least in part, the onset of the complex mineral and bone disorders associated with CKD, together with hypocalcemia, low vitamin D levels and secondary hyperparathyroidism. So why does this happen? Hyperphosphatemia in CKD tends to occur in the later stages, that is stage 4 and 5, because of insufficient excretion of phosphate by the poorly performing kidneys, leading to an accumulation of phosphate in the body. Surprisingly, and not generally adequately considered, the skeleton contributes to the hyperphosphatemia in CKD through the effects of abnormal bone remodeling. This causes excess bone resorption and thereby they contribute to the hypososphatemia by effectively blocking the skeleton from exerting its normal reservoir function of phosphate. Number 13, NICE also talks about the effect of CKD on bone metabolism and osteoporosis. So what is CKD mineral bone disease? It is the disturbed mineral metabolism caused by uremic toxins or secondary hyperparathyroidism which disturbs bone mineralization and makes it difficult for calcium and phosphate to enter the bones, resulting in increased serum calcium and phosphate. The negative balance between bone formation and resorption in CKD results in bone loss and in those cases bone densitometry will detect osteopenia or osteoporosis. The prevalence of osteoporosis in the population with CKD certainly exceeds the prevalence in the general population. As we have explained previously, when bone resorption exceeds bone formation, phosphorus and calcium are released and contribute to hyperphosphatemia and hypercalcemia. This is an important stimulus to heterotopic calcifications, especially in the vasculature, which can lead to cardiovascular events and mortality. And because vitamin D deficiency plays an important role in renal osteodystrophy, vitamin D supplements are important in treating both osteoporosis and vascular calcification at the same time. Number 14, following on this, NICE says that if vitamin D deficiency has been corrected with cholecalciferol or ergocalciferol and symptoms of CKD mineral and bone disorders persist, we will offer alpha-calcidol or calcitriol to people with GFR of less than 30 and we will monitor the calcium and phosphate levels. For this we have to understand a bit the vitamin D metabolism in the human body. The proximal tubular cells in the kidney convert 25 vitamin D, that is 25-hydroxycholecalciferol and 25-hydroxyergocalciferol into the active form calcitriol, also known as 1,25-dihydroxycholecalciferol. Now, as kidney disease worsens, there is a reduction in the renal 1-alpha-hydroxylase activity for converting vitamin D into the active form calcitriol. 
whilst you would think that giving calcium trials straight away would be the solution, we also know that treatment with vitamin D, that is ergocalciferol or cholecalciferol, has been shown to increase calcium trial levels in both stage 3 and stage 4 CKD. So these, together with the other benefits of vitamin D that we have discussed, is the reason why cholecalciferol and ergocalciferol remain the main therapeutic approach initially. However, treatment with ergocalciferol or cholecalciferol has not always lowered PTH levels, which can contribute to the persistent CKD bone disorder symptoms. And this is why therapy with calcitriol or alpha-calcidol, which is an analog vitamin D, can be used in these cases as second line. And finally, number 15, NICE says that we will need to consider oral sodium bicarbonate supplementation if both the EGFR less than 30 and a serum bicarbonate concentration is less than 20. Now, why is this? We know that metabolic acidosis has been associated with CKD due to a reduced renal acid excretion. Chronic metabolic acidosis is a common complication of CKD and it also appears to contribute to the progression of kidney disease. Existing evidence from clinical trials suggests that alkali therapy, that is treatment with sodium bicarbonate, could slow down the progression of CKD and this is why it is recommended even if the acidosis is not particularly symptomatic. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope that you have found it useful. Thank you for listening and goodbye.